This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. The Western States Endurance Run, known commonly as the Western States 100 Miler, it's actually a 100.2 ultra marathon that takes place in the California Sierra Nevada mountains each year on the last full weekend of June. It just finished. The race starts at the base of the Olympic Valley Ski Resort and finishes at the Placer High School track in Auburn, California. The train is quite rugged, frequently showcasing snow on the highest passes and record hot temperatures throughout the course. Runners ascend a cumulative total of 18,090 feet and descend a total of 22,970 feet on mountain trails before reaching the finish. Because of the length, the race commences at 5 a.m. and continues through the day and into the night. Runners finishing before the 30-hour limit for the race, they get a commemorative bronze belt buckle while runners finishing it under 24 hours get a silver belt buckle. Going into the race, heat was a factor this year. And the, race, and the racers focused on it. Before the race, the organizi- organizers announced that they were going to provide 32,000 pounds of ice for aid stations, which works out to be about five pounds of ice per runner per aid station to stave off the California heat. Temps eventually rose to around 101 degrees this year, not nearly the potentially predicted 108, which certainly affected many racers. I don't know if you're tracking what's going on in Seattle, but they're having 108 degree temperature right now. In the end, for the first time in history, three of the top 10 and nine of the top 20 finishers were women this year. And one woman jokingly said, I have to be careful about what I say about how some of the men pace themselves, ribbing at the aggressive pace set by the front of the men's pack. In fact, they set it out so hard, many of the men just dropped out. Ultramarathons. You may ask yourself, why would anybody do that? And I will tell you. (laughs) I don't know. I have, this is on my bucket list of things to do one day. It'll probably be, as I read it, the last thing I'd ever do. Uh, but it's something I would enjoy. I like to run ultramarathons. I like to run, though, the 50-miler. It's a much smaller scale than the 100-miler. But I tell you that story because I have a friend up in northern Virginia, and uh, we'll call him Abel because that's his name. So we'll call him Abel, and uh, Abel is not a runner. But when I make a decision to run a race, I always go to Abel, and I tell Abel, Abel, I'm going to run this race. And he's like, that's great, Tavis. I said, Abel, you got to run it with me. And Abel says, okay, I'll run it with you. We've probably signed up for three races together. And we have started three races together. And Abel has finished zero races with me. Because the conversation goes something like this. Abel, let's run this race. Okay, I'll run it. And we'll start training, and I'll train, and I'll get training, and 
keep going. And Abel, have you run any today? No, I'll get it tomorrow. It's like, Abel, you got to train. Abel was a Marine. And so I have no doubt in my mind that that guy is, is a tough guy. But since he left the Marine Corps, he has embraced civilian life. And, uh, and civilian life, in some ways, has really embraced him. And, and so I would say to Abel, Abel, you got to train. He's like, I got it. I'll be, it's, it's just 50 miles. Well, I'm not a very good, never a very good friend to Abel because it got to the point where I would tell Abel to run these races with me just for fun, just to see if he would get out there and try it because I knew he would not train for it and, uh, and he would spend the money and, uh, and, then, and then we would go and we'd run these races together and inevitably about three or four miles into the race, usually I'm gone and my cell phone would ring. Hey, Tavis, this is Abel. I think I got to back out of this. <laughs> and I'd say, Abel, you can do it because I'm an encourager. And I would say, Abel, you can keep doing, keep running. You know, Tavis, I'm really hurting. In fact, I forgot to change into my running shoes, as he said on one race. I said, Abel, what are you wearing? He's like, I'm wearing my basketball shoes. I said, Abel, you probably should have changed. I know, but I forgot. I'm just going to quit. I was like, Abel, you can do this. Because I'm an encourager. Really, what I wanted him to experience was the pain and agony for 47 more miles. We all make decisions in our lives. And some people, when they make a decision, regardless of what it is, uh, they, they, uh, uh, they make the decision, and there's some people who come alongside of them, and they're cheerleaders. I mean, they cheer them on. I was that cheerleader, but it was really for bad motives. But I was that cheerleader. Some people, though, when someone makes a decision, they come in and they say, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to turn out. And they're the naysayers. And tonight, we're going to look into Pilgrim's Progress again, and we're going to see two of these types of people, and they, though, are going to be the commentary on one of the most important decisions in life. So this is our third lesson as we study that 17th century classic, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Remember, the book was literally written from a jail cell for his children when they would come visit him. And, of course, Bunyan had been imprisoned for refusing to be licensed by the Church of England to be a minister of the gospel. He was preaching illegally, if you will. Now, you might recall from previously in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, after reading from his book in the story, he discovered that his city, remember that his city, the city of destruction, was going to be destroyed. This terrified the Pilgrim, and he wanted to run. But he didn't know which way to go, and so he began to weep And as he, as he contemplated his plight. And as he wept, the evangelist came to him and asked him why he was weeping. The pilgrim responded, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. And after that, to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able. Pilgrim did not want to die, and he felt utterly helpless if he were to be judged. So the evangelist then asked him why he would not be willing to die. How's this for, a, for someone to evangelize? Why aren't you willing to die since you are, your life was attended by so many evils? Your life's horrible, is what he was saying. Pilgrim then explained that he feared the burden on his back would lower him lower than the grave and into hell. 
This is when the evangelist advised Pilgrim to run. But Pilgrim insisted he didn't know where to run. And so to this, the evangelist pointed across the field. And if you recall, he said, do you see yonder shining light? Keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. As John Bunyan continued his dream, the pilgrim followed evangelist's instructions and he began to run. He had not run from his own door very far when his wife and his children began to cry after him to return. But the man had an interesting response. Pilgrim put his fingers in his ears and he ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain or the field. Pilgrim is a literal personification of that passage in Luke 14, where Jesus says that if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. John Bunyan is painting the picture of what it means to, with complete abandon, become a disciple of Jesus Christ. This story is a true allegory. It is in reality that the seeking soul cannot but discover that others who are watching are full of sympathies, concerns, comments, and even criticisms. Many of us can relate to the fact that when a real scoundrel a heathen of the heathens becomes converted, gossip ensues. There are those who doubt that his or her salvation was real. There are others who look down upon it saying, so-and-so has found religion. Still, there are others who are interested more in the phenomenon, but only to see if things will change. You see, the world cannot understand the process that even here as we're looking in the story as Pilgrim experienced. So why do you think Pilgrim began to run? Why do you think he put his fingers in his ears? I, I think it shows both the sense of urgency and the resoluteness of Pilgrim. Compare this trip that Pilgrim was making with another man who is familiar to us, a man who also ran from his home. He, too, was warned of his city's destruction. Like Pilgrim, he was warned to get out of his city before it was destroyed. But when this man told his family of the impending doom, he seemed as one who mocked. In fact, he had no sense of urgency. He lingered in the city to the point that he had to be forcibly removed, along with his wife and his two daughters. Don't look back, they were told. They, too, were warned to escape for your life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. If only Lot's wife had not looked behind her. If only Lot and his family had put their fingers in their ears and moved on. So Pilgrim begins to run. The neighbors came out to see him run, and as he ran, some mocked, others threatened. Some cried after him to return. And among those yelling at him were two who resolved to go and bring the pilgrim back by force. The name of one of these men was Obstinate. The name of the other, Pliable. And although Pilgrim was a good ways from them, 
They were resolved, and they quickly overtook him. And this is where we'll pick up the story again, and we will consider the conversation between Pilgrim and these two men from the city of destruction, obstinate and pliable. But before I do, I want to talk to give a little quick illustration about obstinance and pliability. Did you know that when the Empire State Building was constructed in 1931, it stood 1,250 feet tall? The famous skyscraper was the world's tallest building and held that title for about 40 years. But today, the world's tallest building is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It stretches more than 1,000 feet above the Empire State Building, 2,717 feet into the air. The Burj Khalifa smashed the record held by Taiwan's Taipei 101, a landmark skyscraper that had 101 floors. And at only 1,666 feet, Taipei 101 tops the Petronas Towers and Kuala Lumpur, Lumpur by 183 feet. Designing these massive skyscrapers is a huge challenge for structural engineers. Builders must account for potential natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes. They also must take everyday weather occurrences into consideration. Even on a normal day, wind forces can reach more than 100 mile per hour at the very top of those tall buildings. Now inside the building, on those top floors, there is what's called oscillation. And it can be unnerving. A 40-story building may sway a foot to the left or a foot to the right. The span of that period might last around four seconds. But a 100-story building, by comparison, may move on the order of two and a half to three feet on each side, cycling through a 10-second period of oscillation. Typically, the taller the building, the longer the periods of its cyclical motion. Those buildings have to be flexible enough and still rigid enough to stand but to endure those, those winds. I work on a ship. We teach our sailors, we try to teach several things, and one is we try to teach them integrity. Now, you might have a definition of integrity, and it's probably fairly accurate. Some like to say it's uh, doing right when nobody's looking. I think that's a better definition for character. Integrity, though, has a literal definition that has to do with engineering. The integrity of a ship is the ability of the ship to be strong, to be able to take a hit and do what? Keep going, because we have a mission to accomplish. A ship needs to be able to absorb that impact, to be pliable enough, and still be rigid enough to continue the fight. So we're going to look at these two examples of an extreme, though. A ship can't be completely pliable and flimsy and bend and break. But neither can it be so rigid that when, it, when a shock happens, it just jars everybody on board. It has to be able to absorb that impact. But we're going to look at two examples tonight. We're going to look at pliable or pliability and obstinate or obstinance. And we are going to look at the personification of these two things. Bunyan shows us at least two responses or reactions of others to the true biblical conversion of another. And first, there is obstinate. 
Of course, the word obstinate means headstrong, willful, stubborn. And Bunyan paints the picture of obstinate as this mullish, stiff-necked, highly opinionated individual who is an obstacle not only to his own salvation, but also to others who would seek after it. Let's be cautious here, though, and not deceive ourselves into thinking that stubbornness is only the quality of certain people. Paul reminded the Romans that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Everyone possesses the capability of a significant measure of obstinacy within us by virtue of our relationship to our father, Adam. Obstinacy expresses itself in an ongoing act of rebellion against our maker, whereby an inerrant hostility and animosity is generated towards a good and gracious God. Even professed believers must be careful that they are not stubbornly refusing to glorify God in the conversion of even the most wicked sinner. Do we spend too much time looking down our legalistic noses, waiting for the repentant sinner to prove they have been saved? Or are we eager to witness the truth that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature? I can only imagine what it must have been like for the early church when they received news that Paul had been converted. This man who had tried to kill them. You have met my father. He has been here. I remember one time I was, uh, I was out in California and my, my uh, uh, father had a, we had a friend, a friend from the uh, Coast Guard Academy, was out there and they just stopped by to visit. And I had never met him. Actually, his name's Pete Cox. He's been here as well. And, and I was just talking with Pete Cox, a friend of my dad's, and we were just getting to know each other. I, he said he had seen me when I was two or three, and now I was 23, and I, we were rekindling old stories, I guess. And, uh, and so he was talking to me, and, he, and he, he goes into this story about my dad at the academy. And he says, oh, your dad. He was horrible. And then he went off to Vietnam, and he said, and he got saved. And when I heard that your dad had gotten saved, I said, oh my, the Apostle Paul all over again. So I called my dad up. I said, dad, what were you like? <laughs> and he said, son, you do not want to know. But conversion can change someone. It can take even the most vilest sinner and make them clean. Do we rejoice in the salvation of others? Or do we judge the salvation of others? As we return to the story, we begin by looking at the question Pilgrim asked them. I can imagine as pliable and obstinate catch up with Pilgrim that they're probably all out of breath. They've been running. In fact, obstinate and pliable have, start, had a, a, have been behind. Pilgrim had a head start. And so they, but they catch him. They were resolved. And I can imagine Pilgrim catches them, or they catch Pilgrim, and he says, neighbors, why are you here? Pilgrim asked. They responded also out of breath, to persuade you to go back with us. But Pilgrim refuses to return. He explains why. That cannot be, he said. You dwell in the city of destruction, the place also where I was born. I know this to be so, and when you die there, you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. 
And with that, Pilgrim turns, to the, turns the invitation on to them and asks them, be content, my neighbors, he says, to go along with me. An obstinate response, what? And leave our friend and comforts behind us? It is at this point that Bunyan actually gives us Pilgrim's name. As with all the characters in the story, his name is also allegorical. So far, we have met evangelist, and we're meeting obstinate and pliable right now. But Bunyan now tells us Pilgrim's name. His name is Christian. And from here, I'm going to refer to him as Christian. Christian responds to obstinate's appeal to friends and comforts by telling him that all that will be forsaken is not worthy to be compared with just a little of what he was seeking after. He told obstinate that he, if he would come with, them, with Christian... He would enjoy these things, too, because there were enough blessings to share. A Christian even challenges obstinate to just come and see and prove him right or wrong, to prove that the Father has bread enough and to spare. However, obstinate is reluctant because he's never seen these blessings that Christian speaks of. But in fact, Christian had not actually seen them either. But what Bunyan is doing here is he employ, he's employing the promise of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul tells the church at Corinth, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Obstinate continues to resist and states that he does not understand how one could leave all the world and its comforts to go find something they know nothing about. But Christian doesn't give up on him. He tells obstinate of the inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. And it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be bestowed at a time appointed on them that diligently seek it. And Christian then offers obstinate the book that Christian has been obviously quoting from, quoting from 1 Peter 1.4 and alluding to Hebrews 11.16. But obstinate adamantly refuses the invitation to read, and he yells, away with your book, and insists that Christian return to the city of destruction. But when Christian refuses this second appeal to return, obstinate turns to pliable and says, hey, just leave him alone, and they'll return without him. But as he does, he makes an interesting statement. He describes to pliable in front of Christian how he actually views those who seek salvation. Obstinate says, let us turn again and go home without him. And this is how he describes the Christian. There is a company of these crazy-headed coxcombs, that's a rooster, that when they take a fancy by the end are wiser in their own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. What Obstinate is describing is the contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. He can't understand it. It makes no sense to him. He even goes so far to say that the wisdom of God is foolishness. We continue to face this and even in our contemporary times. The world does not understand what we have, but how can they? And consider how Paul neatly explains this. Your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, he says. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, 
which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now certainly, sometimes when Christians speak, they do speak foolishly. Especially when they try to rehearse the wisdom of the world. When they endeavor to compete with the minds of this, of this world. When they strive to master those things that appeal to the princes of the world. May we stay within the scriptures and only speak as of the oracles of God. Let us rely on and only on the wisdom of God. And let's not care that we might be called crazy-headed roosters without the reasoning of seven men. Though obstinate endeavored to coerce Pliable to abandon Christian, to his credit, Pliable, he wanted to know more. He used the logic that if what Christian was saying was true then the place he was headed was certainly better than the city of destruction. So he tells Obstinate that my heart inclines to go with my neighbor. Now in Bunyan's dream, after one last demand to return, Obstinate returns without Christian or Pliable. And in our story, we come into the conversation between Pliable and Christian. Christian is grateful for the company of Pliable, and he acknowledges to Pliable that there is some trepidation over his journey. He even admits that, had even obstinate himself felt what I have felt of the powers and terrors of what is yet unseen, he would not thus lightly departed from us. Christian was convinced that dangers lied ahead, and he was even convinced that obstinate would have, been, would have with his stubbornness and stick to itness, would have been necessary to help him get through these dangers. But obstinate had left. And obstinate had hardly returned, and so Pliable changed the subject by asking not about the dangers, but what about are these things that are to be enjoyed where they were going? Christian acknowledges that he cannot speak well of these things. He says, I I don't know how to describe them. So he gives Pliable the book that he could read it for himself. But Pliable insisted on hearing it from Christian. He preferred to hear it from Christian because he doubted whether the book was true. So Christian tries to expound on what he has read. And Christian tells of an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given, and that they will inhabit this kingdom forever. And Pliable is enjoying this so much, and he's wanting to know more and more. So Christian continues and tells him about the crowns of glory to be given and shining garments to be worn, garments that shine like the sun. He tells how there will be no more crying nor sorrow because the owner of the kingdom will wipe away all the tears. Let's pause here to consider this character, pliable. Pliable means flexible, bending, easily influenced. In contrast to obstinate, pliable becomes easily persuaded by Christian, and he joins him on his journey. Pliable wants to talk about heaven, an endless kingdom, crowns of glory, angelic hosts, a place where there's no more crying nor sorrow. And he wants to hurry up and get there. He can only think of the benefits of this place. He's ready to receive the rewards. But he misses the point. Remember when Christian reminded him that had obstinate felt what I have felt of the powers and terrors of what is yet unseen, he would not thus lightly have given us the back? He was trying to warn Pliable that though there are awards to be given, the journey will have powers and terrors. But Pliable ignores this 
And he wants to hurry. But of course, Christian cannot hurry because he still has the burden on his back. Bunyan does not tell us of any burden on pliable. Pliable fits the shallow believer as described by Jesus in the parable of the sower. Pliable hath no root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by, he is offended. It is as true today as it was in the story of Pilgrim's Progress Day that those seeking truth should discover that there are others who are watching. Remember, some will express sympathy, some concern, some will criticize. Bunyan has showed us at least two of these reactions, obstinate and pliable. Obstinate is stiff-necked, highly opinionated, and an obstacle to his own salvation and that of others. Pliable becomes temporarily persuaded by Christian's arguments and decides to accompany him along the way. However, pliable only wants the benefits and the rewards. He doesn't see that his own sin, if not left at the cross, will carry him deep into hellfire. Now, throughout the rest of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan will continue to refer to those not willing to give up things of the world in order to follow Christ. And as we go along, I think it would be helpful for you to also consider what are those things that you have found that are hard to give up? What are those things that have a grip on you? Now, often when we read or hear stories such as Pilgrim's Progress or stories in general, we tend to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. We tend to side with the protagonist. As I have read this, you've probably related to Christian. Because in my imagination, I am always Superman, Robin Hood. I'm always the good guy. However, have you considered as we relate just this piece of the story, if you are perhaps more like Christian's wife, weeping as her loved one followed Christ. Or maybe you're like his children, not understanding why someone is leaving to follow Christ. Worse, are you an obstinate who chides and judges the new believer, waiting for them to prove their own salvation. Or are you like pliable? You have an interest in the awards, but not the sacrifices. Next time, as we continue our study of Pilgrim's Progress, we will continue to listen in on this conversation that's taking place between Christian and pliable as they continue their journey, as they continue to travel on. And as this small and weary band continues their journey, we're going to get a glimpse into the despondency that comes when we adopt a sense of dejection and gloom by believing that God cannot be gracious to souls as wretched as ours. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brief passage from Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan wrote to remind us of truths that we find and have read in your word. Lord, this allegory that he created, that you allowed him to use his imagination, has blessed many for centuries. But Lord, I'm thankful that it returns us to biblical truths. Lord, I pray that as we contemplate on this story, that, Father, we would turn to the Bible and, see, and, and search it out, Father, and see how we could be an encouragement to those new believers. How we, could, how we could be an encouragement to those 
whose lives have been radically changed. Father, they have nothing to prove to us if you have already saved them by your grace. So, Father, I pray that we would not stubbornly look down at others. But, Father, I pray also that we would not just be so caught up in looking just for the rewards that we refuse to suffer for the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not neither be so obstinate nor pliable, but, Father, that we would be Christ-like as we see in our story. Bless us as we leave here. I pray that you would give people safety as they travel home. Lord, I pray that you be with our pastor as he travels. Watch over him and keep him safe. And Lord, I pray that what they have to do and what they have to accomplish, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would give them wisdom and just watch over them. And Lord, we look forward to this Sunday as we gather together to corporately worship you. And Father, we are thankful for this nation and the independence that we have enjoyed. But should you bring persecution and give it to us, Lord, I pray that we would be found worthy and that we would also be willing to step in with those for whom the world was not found worthy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life.